Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. It is damn good to be with you. I'm so excited. My guest this week is Charlie freaking Stavish. Longtime friend, longtime record producer, producer of Divided Heaven Records. It's good to have Charlie finally on this podcast. It only took about 16 months of coercion. But for those of you in the back, or in case you missed it, here's what's happening. Divided Heaven has a brand new record titled Oblivion that is coming out February 4th, 2022 on AF Records in North America and Gunner Records in Europe. And I have decided to do a series within this podcast, the Berman Hour podcast. The series is called Into Oblivion, where I'm going to be interviewing the various personnel that I worked with on this record. So what better way to start than with my old friend and producer, Charlie Stavish. But I'm going to be talking to the other producers I worked with. I worked with four goddamn producers on this record. I'm going to be talking to Mike Biancanello, Tim Van Dorn. I'm going to be talking to Frank Turner. I'm also talking to Randy Moore, Jess Guys. I'll be talking to Bradley Riot. A lot of people who lent their talents. Some musical, some artistic, some spiritual, maybe. But it's going to be a lot of fun. So for the next... I don't know, X number of weeks until the record's out. We're going to be focusing on people that I worked with on this record and what they're doing. It's not all about me. It's a little about me, but it's not all about me. That said, I'm trying to sell records because that's what we do. I just approved the test pressings last week. Uh, They sounded great. They were awesome. And it was a tremendous, a tremendous experience to hear these songs on wax on my turntable, through my speakers, through my headphones fucking great and despite what's going on with Adele ordering a million pieces of of wax for her new record and all this other stuff and all of this traffic that's happening at these record practicing plants it looks as if we're actually going to have Oblivion in hand the first week of February when the record is supposed to come out I think we got everything in we dotted our I's and our lowercase j's before the window shut on everything with this record making process so I feel for everybody that's you know, got to wait until 2023, but my goodness, that's a whole other can of worms we'll get into at some point. But Burn Me, the first single off the new record, was released a couple weeks ago, and it is doing awesome. You can listen to it anywhere that you stream music, preferably Spotify, because they keep better track of the numbers. So go and listen to Burn Me a few times. It's a ripper of a song. It was like my attempt at trying to channel the cult, or looks that kill era motley crew so you know it's my bag baby as they say i'm also partnering with punknews.org for this into oblivion series on the berman hour podcast punk news they simultaneously love and hate me well the people there love me the people who comment there do not love me they hate me and it's an interesting thing you know every time i get press on punknews.org there's always this vitriolic hatred towards me in the comment section. And every once in a while, I go in and I defend myself because I figure I'm a somewhat of a public person in this, you know, sphere of music. You know, I'm not hiding behind a fake handle or a fake name or anything like that, like these trolls are. So I, I fire back at them. And that's kind of what the song Burn Me is about. You know, it's, it's like I'm not just going to sit back while people just 
ravage at my reputation or my art or my skill set. I work hard at this. I am passionate about the songs I write and the records I put out because I work my ass off for it. So if some motherfucker with a fucking keyboard sitting in his mom's basement thinks that I'm not going to defend myself, they're wrong. I'm going to defend myself. And sometimes, you know, Peter, my manager, he's like, ah, don't don't feed the trolls. I'm like, ah, sometimes I, I just got to stand up for myself because it's important to remember creators of art, the creative people, our creativity will always outshine the commentary that follows it. But ever so pervasive in our culture, that doesn't feel like it's the case. It's a good reminder. So with that in mind, I do want to say, Pre-order the record. Oh my goodness. It's a great record, if I may say so myself. If you're in North America, you can pre-order it from AF Records. If you're in Europe, you can order it through Gunner Records. If you don't know what either of those things mean, hi, mom, how are you? That's okay. Go to dividedheaven.com, dividedheaven.com, and I have links for both the North American and European pre-orders, respectively. What else do I have to get to? New series, Charlie Stavish, AF and Gunner Records, Punk News, Burn Me Is Out. It's going to be awesome. The records are selling. One of the colors is already sold out, I think, so that's tremendous. Thank you for that. And without much further ado, let's get into the interview, the first in this Into Oblivion series on the Berman Hour podcast. Here is my conversation with Charlie Stavish. Let's get it. Charlie Stavish. Yo. <laughs> Charlie Stavish, you don't strike me as a man of the outdoors, but you certainly look like a man of the outdoors. <laughs> is, your, is your hair longer than mine? Uh, probably. You know, I'm a, I'm a man of the indoors, I think, uh, exclusively lately. That's yeah. probably why I look like this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't really... There's very few people who see me without this hat on just because I don't think I've really figured out how I'm my this new look is supposed to look after a couple of years, you know, or I, however long it is. Have you um, had your haircut since the pandemic started? Yes, once. Well, twice, technically. Emily did it once outside, very begrudgingly. She did not want to. She was worried about ruining it. I was not worried about that, so yeah. I kind of made her do it. But it was a little bit of like a timid trim, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't really anything. And then um, I did get it cut for real. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten my hair cut since March 4th. You know the date? Yeah, because I think it was the same day that I went and saw Kiss at Staples Center. <laughs> and it yeah, was also, it was, like, it was like two days of, uh, it was the two days before things really, like everything in my life, all my jobs, all my recordings, yeah. everything got canceled. So. Right. Yeah, that sticks out in my in my memory. We'll start with talking about Oblivion because this is the first record I, you and I worked on the last two Divided Heaven records plus some singles and EPs and other shit. This is the first record where we didn't exclusively work together. I worked with other yeah. producers. Mm-hmm. But still, there's 10 songs on Oblivion. You stand in the majority having produced 4 of them. Ayo. Ayo. <laughs> so you still win. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what your thoughts were about Panic, They Poisoned Our Fathers, Oblivion, which used to be called Dressed in Blue, mm. and what was the other one that we worked on? Now I'm, I'm forgetting. Oh, my goodness. What did we work on? Oh, oh Burn Me. Burn Me. Yeah. yeah. So, 
Yeah, so Burn Me is going to be the first single, which comes out in November. But They Poisoned Our Fathers came out a year ago as kind of a standalone, but it was always meant to be on the record. I'm kidding. What were your thoughts when I kind of presented this batch of songs to you? They're great. I mean, as usual. Um, I think it was, they're maybe on like the darker side slightly of things, Uh, maybe like, you know, topically and I guess tonally a little bit. Yeah, just an awesome batch of tunes. And I mean, I I really do think that this is, you're just, you know, as the records go, they're just getting better and better. This one's your best yet. Yeah, I think so too. But I, I'm glad that you said that and not me. I didn't want to say that to you because I didn't want you to think, oh, the first record I don't work exclusively with Savage. Tell me why that's my, my finest work yet. <laughs> no, I, I didn't I didn't want to throw you under the bus as if Youngblood and Cold War weren't. But I feel like, let's just kind of take a, a little bit of a step back. You and I met, I tell this story all the time. We met at a dinner party where it's, yeah. it seemed like we were the only two people that drank or between you and me and your then girlfriend and now wife, Emily, we were the only three people that were like, oh, there's an open bottle of wine that needs finishing. Let's let's do this. Yeah. And, and we got to talking and we kind of struck up a, a little bit of an acquaintanceship. And mm-hmm. then I heard, I guess they were more than rough mixes, but they weren't final mixes of what you were doing for the singer and the songwriter. And they're just a folksy duo, but you made them sound like a million bucks. And that's yeah. when I reached out to you and we kind of started the the process for what became yeah. Youngblood. What do you remember about that time, you know, kind of acclimating together as producer, engineer, and musician? Yeah, um, I I also recall that dinner party. I remember us kind of like hoarding <laughs> what no one else wanted. So it didn't, you know, wasn't didn't feel like hoarding necessarily at the time. Yeah, I remember we met up at a, like a coffee shop, like on maybe on Venice Boulevard or something like that. I feel like it was like uh, yeah, I can somewhere it. Culver City ish or something. Um, to, to just kind of discuss like you know things, music, and I I think at the time, if I recall, you were under the impression, or at least the only necessarily maybe. Um, the, one of the only things you knew that I had worked on was a Jane's Addiction album. I remember us <laughs> discussing that and you thinking like, oh, well, I don't know if this is the guy. I mean, that's not really what I'm up to. Yeah, I, re- um, I record all my parts with my shirt on, unlike exactly. Dave Navarro. So, yeah. I mean, right off the bat, there's, you know, you've got way too much clothes to be in that genre. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I just remember us like discussing kind of like that like scene kind of music. I mean, I think that you probably were not aware that I was like a big Saves the Day fan. And I think we bonded on that mm-hmm. quite a bit in music of, of that type. At that time, you had only had just uh, Rival City out, right? That was because, yeah, the next record was your second. The one we worked on was the second one. Yeah. My curiosity was like, is it going like the dashboard kind of route where it's like gonna evolve and add a band? But it, like initially it was just acoustic, you know, and I was kind of up for either thing because, I mean, I'm you know, definitely a big fan. Yeah, I remember we did that thing where, you know, you hear artists talk about this. Uh, we wrote 50 songs for the record. Yeah. And then- <laughs> You know, only the 12 best made the record. And you're right. just like, fuck you. But we actually tried that. I remember presenting, I I think it was 36 songs to you. And there were three that you, you didn't have a fingerprint on because I had recorded them with Stefan Egerton. And only, oh, yeah. only one of those ended up making the record, which was Melissa Militia. Yeah. But I remember we kind of threw those in and that amounted to 36 either songs or demos of, of things. 
And we all kind of went through them, and you and me and my manager kind of like ranked them, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's term. right. And I think it was yeah. And you had like a spreadsheet going, if I, I recall. I did. Yeah, I like I like <laughs> spreadsheets. Man, uh, me too. I love spreadsheets. Yeah, they're the best. So it was an interesting endeavor, and I feel like it worked for yeah. Young Blood, but it turned it into a long process. Like, do you look back at that time and think like ah? It was worth it, or do you look back and think uh, we could have really shaved saved a lot of time had we just committed oh, well, to fifteen songs? You, you know? know, hindsight, anything can always be done faster after you've already done it and like figured out the path to the end. Yeah, sure. If you went back and did it again, you'd get through that maze a lot faster. No, I don't. I don't think. I think that was the way it was supposed to happen. I think. I think some songs made it on to that album that might not have because of the ranking process. And there were definitely, if I recall, didn't each of us kind of get like one that like couldn't be vetoed. Couldn't be vetoed. Yeah. Exactly. Which one was mine? I don't. I remember there were two tunes that, and they switched titles at some point. I think we recorded it. It was at Q Gardens. Was that called? something else and then they they swapped at some point q gardens and musser park were switched something like that yeah I, I recall there was a song that like was one of my like oh yeah this one's a must for me and like i was the only one who felt that way and now i can't remember the title because i think it changed after like I, even after it was like during mastering it might have changed or yeah well i q gardens was it was a lullaby. I mean, I wrote it for someone who's now, you know, in the ninth grade. So, I mean, just it's kind of crazy how that happens. But yeah, that's a song that people bring up regularly when it comes to that record. And to really? me, it's a blind spot. Yeah, I think. Cool. And I, but I give that credit to you because I think you polished a turd. I think you produced no. something because the song itself, a lot of those songs, like they don't have typical structures. Yeah, that's OK, though. That's OK. But I, when I br- brought these songs to you, I remember thinking I had written Melissa Militia with a purposeful pop song structure because I wanted a hit, damn it. Yeah. Didn't quite work out. But the song plays like that. Yeah. And I think the dynamic between having that as the third song on the record and having everything else where it could be like, well, one song only has two choruses and one of the measure one of the choruses is one measure and the other is three. You know, weird shit like that. We really I think we made it work, even though it was unconventional, yeah. right? That, I, that's I mean, it's probably not the right idea, but I'm not like a stickler for like, oh, it's you know, it's not doesn't traditionally go like that, so it's not right or whatever. Well, that's you what know, I wanted like, to ask. Do if you it go feels on cool then it's cool? Yeah. You go on feeling then. Yeah. Yeah, and there was, like, definitely, like, you know, I know there's, like, a lot of, like, atmospheric cool stuff on that particular song, but, like, when I heard the demo, that stuff's not there, and I don't personally, I don't think I necessarily, like, picture specific parts when I hear songs. Like, maybe I can picture, like, a vibe, but I'm not, like, you know, like, oh, it's going to do this melody, and then I hum it to myself. It's usually, like, in the middle of the process is when that kind of stuff for, like, unwritten parts get written for me. So, like, you know, the maybe some of the atmospheric stuff makes it, like, a cool listen, but I think it's a cool song, and I think that there's cool, you know, emotional sections to it and melodies vocally that are um, that are really interesting, and that kind of made it why it was on my like must list 
in general, I think Young Blood could be described accurately as atmospheric. Yeah. For kind of a pop acoustic singer songwriter record, it had yeah. a bigger sound where at times it would be purposefully cloudy and at times it would be very, very clairvoyant, you know, in vibe. And that record opened up a lot of opportunities for me. It was a high, it was on a higher profile label. The tour started to get a little bigger, you know, mm-hmm. but I was essentially then taking the songs from that record and putting them through rival city type of performance aspect to be able to tour them because I, I didn't have yeah, a band yourself. with me yet. Right. The reason I say that is uh, Nick Moriali and I really started to put the full band together to encompass a lot of that vibe from the Youngblood record and and really be able to capture it on stage. By, yep. the, by the time we got around to doing that, we were neck deep into writing songs for Cold War. And I think by the time we landed at Home Plate, to start the process with you for Cold War, I think we were in over our heads trying to record a record to tape, which we'll talk about the pros and cons of that in a moment. No cons. No cons. <laughs> but also trying to... Money, cost. <laughs> yeah, trying to capture... I mean, Youngblood was kind of hard to follow up because it was a bigger record. I, I Looking back on it, I wasn't up to the challenge. I wasn't in a good headspace. I feel like sometimes no. you and I working together weren't in a good headspace. But we got through it, but it felt like we got through it by the skin of our teeth. And what what are your memories of, of the Cold War session and that time frame? <laughs> well, I did, we did the basic tracking pretty fast, if I recall. Yeah, but then it was like everything else just felt like... Well, everything else is the, um, the kind of unknown, though. You yeah. Know? Like, the basics are the parts that are the, like the beef of the song, the guitar, the main guitar part. The vocals were there. We didn't necessarily um, record keeper vocals live, but the parts were sorted out. That would have taken quite a bit of time if none of that was in place, you know? Um, Just like all of the pretty, you know, sprinkly electric guitars that we added, like those parts didn't exist. So to sit there and dial up like a super cool sound and then come up with a part that isn't in the way, of what already is there, because that's the stuff that's not going away. You know, that stuff takes time. So, yeah, maybe it, it possibly went on for a while, but it's not for any um, for any reason that isn't normal for me. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff takes a while. I mean, I did a record with a guy who, it was kind of, this, I mean, that's kind of one of my favorite parts of record making is the, okay, now let's overdub stuff that is not, was never thought about by the band ever. Let's, like, write parts right now that are going to be really important. Um, And not everyone can just like do that. And, you know, I did a record with a guy where we did, it was 10, maybe 11 songs. And it took us like, it might've taken us like six full 12 hour days to write and record electric guitar parts on an album that never, ever, ever had them. And there was really, honestly, there was a point where we were like, okay, this record's done. And then the, the artist decided, like, well, maybe we should. Wait. There was no electric guitar in it. It was like a lot of keyboards, a lot of acoustic, drums and bass. You know, vocals. yeah, one vocal, no harmonies. And he just decided it needed a little bit of filling out. So we had to, like, you know, t- take something that we had deemed finished a week ago, and um, now unfinish it and actually finish it. I think that's a normal thing. And yeah, we did all the basics really fast. I think for Cold War, we did the drums. 
and the main guitar. You did sing while we while it went down, but we probably overdubbed all of it. I think then we probably immediately doubled all of the main guitar parts, the beefs, and then we added some. Uh, yeah, and we did like a like a third like Weezer gnarlier, chord. Yeah, yes, definitely a second inversion, fifth in the bass kind of like thickness that you can tuck under. That's on like most of it. Like we had really good times within that era of spontaneity where we're coming up with beautiful or eclectic or sparkly, whatever uh, adjective we want to throw at it, at these guitar parts. But I guess when I think back at it, I was, for some reason, I wasn't intimidated by the spontaneity that we were capturing on Youngblood. But during Cold War, I was. Mm. Again, I was kind of in my own head about it. But I look back at it now, and the stuff that is on Cold War, I mean, I think that's like some of the greatest guitar stuff that I've ever done. Me too. And I, I mean, kind of fr- I forget that, how to play most of it. I have to always have to that, reteach it to myself. Dude, that's yeah. how every album I make, the people that play on it, like the day after they do it, 10 minutes after they do it, they're like, wait, how's this song go? Because <laughs> like everything is written like on the spot and you're like, oh, that's perfect. Do that. And then we do it and then it's great. And then, you know, you don't have yeah. to do it again. So yeah. you don't really remember it necessarily in a month. But do you think about that as a, as an attribute to your production style? Well, I, yeah, it's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot actually lately. Like I know for a fact that I don't necessarily make stuff, make records the way that they currently are made. How so? I, I think everyone like does a lot of, um, you know, one thing at a time, obsess about this, you know, bass sound, get the get the hi-hat sounding cool, record just the drums, you know, to a click, and then add the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I don't work like that at all. I like to do as much live as I can. It just, you get a better pic, I think you get a better picture of like what it's going to be if you can flesh it out right now before it even hits the tape or Pro Tools or whatever you're doing. You can like hear it back the way it almost the way it's going to sound when it's complete you can just make better decisions i think all the the musicians can say like oh you're doing that well then i'm going to do this because it'll complement that as opposed to like down the road like oh well the you know we already did the drums and bass so like you are locked in now you can't say to the bass player hey don't play that what if you did this because i'm doing this and then you just come up with a new thing that neither of you had been doing, but it's a tweak on what it was. Right. And I like that. I just like, you know, it's fat. I think it's faster, even though maybe it's slower in the moment because everyone has to like be on the same page. And, you know, that takes a little bit of time to work out a song, especially if it's like hired musicians that have never heard it. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong way to do it. I usually do it. The let's take a lot of time right now, spend all day working out an arrangement then do a couple of takes and see what we have. Right. And then add a couple of things if it needs it, and then it's done. As opposed to like, okay, what tempo is this? Okay, let's just do a, you know, like three days of drums. Okay, that's done. Let's do bass day. That's cool. And a lot of people work like that. It's more efficient for sure. I mean, you can just focus on one thing at a time as opposed to everything all at once. Right. But is how you work an adaptation or a reaction to how you kind of came up when you were assisting other producers or assisting other engineers and you think now I'm kind of I'm steering the ship. So I'm going to kind of take it a different direction. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's definitely. I mean, I've had like experiences doing it the traditional or the the modern traditional way, I guess. Yeah. Of like, okay, this is a one at a time kind of deal. A lot of producers that I've worked with for like long stretches of time do like to work on tape. Back in the day when I was working in New York, that would be like a very much a hybrid thing. So we would spend a lot of time, do as much as possible on tape. But then we ended up kind of like, maybe we'd record the whole band and we'd decide like, ah, eh, we should redo the guitars. Mm -hmm. But everything else was cool. Or like, uh, let's, like, everything's perfect. Let's just do just the bass over, you know, something like that. Um, and probably cut it on tape and just transfer it straight into Pro Tools once it's done. Those those are funny records, though, because, I mean, a lot of those would um, start out with, like, the ethos of, like, we're going to do it. It's going to be raw. We're not going <laughs> to fix anything. It's all on tape. It's great. It's just what it is. We're going to get, like, real music coming out of the speakers. And then you get to the by other the end, end of and you're it, like, hey, let's open the No, computer. literally by the end of it, it's like every note is edited and perfect and there's no, like mistakes anymore you know and like i personally don't care about that but that was at a time where it wasn't my decision it wasn't my place to say like oh no that's not a mistake that sounds cool that gives it character which is you know maybe what i thought but it's not what i was supposed to say because it wasn't my place and i guess now that it is yeah i could say like ah no one's gonna hear that no one's gonna care about that there's all this other cool stuff happening don't worry about that one little like hiccup It'll pass by in a moment and no one will ever think about it again. Or somebody will hear it and think, wow, that's cool. There's a little, like, mistake. That's my favorite part of the song. Right. Or whatever. Or somewhere in between. Yeah. So did you start making records in New York? Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, literally, I guess I started. Across the street in New Jersey? (laughs) Across the street in Jersey. Exactly. When I was just a kid, when I was in high school. I mean. My friends and I, we just would, you know, record music in the basement and we would just kind of like figure out how to do it. And I can tell you now, looking back on it, we definitely did not know how to do it because did, we did everything, almost like everything wrong. Did you the end up going we, to school later? though? I did. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, honestly, it was like at the time it was heavily because I wanted to learn how to do the thing I was already doing. I wanted to know how to do it properly. Got it. Um, and just do it better. And then, like, best case scenario, maybe that it could lead to, like, a job where, like, somebody will actually, like, pay me to do it because now I do know how to do it. When I learned what a compressor was, it definitely opened my eyes to the times when I would have to take every single note of a bass track and automate the volume of it because they're so erratic. And I was like, wait, there's there's something that'll, like, kind of just do it for you? What do you mean? <laughs> like, I spent hours on that. Uh, yeah. It's just funny, you know. It's funny to like know that someone else already figured all this stuff out. But yeah, I mean, I guess I started really then making suspicious sounding recordings, suspect um, records. Yes, yeah. and honestly, there's there's things that I don't even know how it technically worked. Like, if I think about how we did it, it shouldn't have worked. Like literally, should, sound shouldn't have come out, but it did. So I don't know exactly. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Um, <laughs> But it's just it's just funny to hear some of that stuff back anytime I find like an old hard drive and I'm like curious, like, what does this sound like? Not that bad. Not good. Nothing Not good. I can play for anyone. <laughs> um, but uh, for a bunch of kids that didn't know what we were doing and like bought like the cheapest stuff we could possibly buy to make it function. That's really cute. Did you develop more as an engineer or I guess was your curiosity more peaked for that side of things than as a performer? You know, like I was saying, that was definitely when I was 
like in a band in high school. So, you know, we were recording our own songs. So it was kind of born out of like the performer just wanting to make a like a CD, mm-hmm. you know, something we could like sell at shows or give to people and just say like, oh, this is what we sound like. So it's hard to say. Like, I don't necessarily think like initially that it was trying to be an engineer or anything. It was really just trying to make like to, to document our songs. The path became a little more clear to me as time went on after I went to school for it. And then right out of school, I got an internship at Electric Lady in New York. And I kind of worked my way up there and I ended up being an engineer there for a long time. And meeting producers that I ended up working with and moved to L.A. with those producers, you know, it like really kind of like snowballed. Uh, But I mean, well before it started to really snowball, I kind of just realized like I I take to the engineering thing a lot more and I can, you know, I just I felt like I understood it and could do it when it wasn't like intuitive necessarily to everyone. It felt intuitive to me. Yeah. Learning how consoles worked like it like like didn't take a lot of explanation for me. It's like, oh, I get it. This does this. And then, okay, that other kind of console, they call that button this, but it does the same thing or whatever. Just kind of like understanding how the gear works or whatever. And I didn't ever care to be like the person on stage. I don't, it doesn't really um, interest me. We were doing it then because like everyone does that. Anyone that's like into music and plays an instrument has like a, a band in high school and maybe that's where it ends. Maybe they take it further because they that's what their calling is. Yeah. And at the time, I guess it felt like it was. But then as soon as I started um, engineering and like actually like working on music that wasn't my own and being paid, if your foot's in that door, keep it in that door. So, you know, there were definitely times. I mean, I still lived in Jersey at the time when I first started there. And I mean, there were there were I think there was one stretch of time where I didn't get to go home for a week. I lived at the studio. At Electric Lady? At Electric Lady. It was like at least seven days or more. Just because, you know, those trains stopped running at 1.30. Or they did at the time. You taking the path at that point or the transit? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I can think of one instance where I took the path to Hoboken to try to... Because there was some kind of tricky thing where if you missed the last train out of Penn, it was possible to get the path to Hoboken and catch it. Because it would kind of get there just ahead of it. There was one time I remember I got to Hoboken and I missed the the connection. God damn. So I just went back and I never tried that again. If it wasn't like a sure thing, I wasn't going to try because the uh, disappointment of going from <laughs> yeah. the village to Hoboken and then back when you don't live in either of those places Ouch, yeah. um, oh, at like two in the morning. Yeah, I was not interested in that. What was it like for you when you revisited the stage as a performer? You know, as a, as somebody in your thirties. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a very uh, strange circumstance. I mean, I, that was like a didn't seem. I guess I'm like that in general, though. I do kind of feel like anytime something like good is happening, I'm like ah, there's no way this is like real or is gonna last or whatever. <laughs> and I had that feeling for sure. I mean, yeah. when I'm like all of a sudden in this band that's playing, and you know, like usually those those shows were. On the low side, like 2,000 cap venues. Yeah. Maybe low. I mean, definitely sometimes less, but sometimes a lot more. I mean, I think we've played a couple of like 15,000 cap places. Yeah. And prior to that, my experience was, if I'm being generous, 50 people. Yeah. At like a VFW, something like that. So that was a big, um, you know, shell shock. And 
you know, I got that gig by just being in the right place at the right time, really. There was a bass player that was supposed to be coming to, to a rehearsal. It was more of an audition than a rehearsal, but he just didn't show up, and he kind of flaked. Like, at the last second, said, like, oh, I can't really make it, and that really wasn't uh, the right answer for that circumstance. Yeah. Since everyone else was there, I kind of just, like, swooped in. I, like, filled in, basically, for the night to, like, not just, like, have the thing collapse, the, the jam that was booked and I ended up just getting the gig because of that just because they said yeah sure I can play bass but you know I'd never played bass in a band ever in my life yeah that was my next question like how did you find irony in the fact that you're playing these bigger shows in your 30s after you deliberately took a different career path now you're thrown back into this and you're playing an instrument that isn't your a instrument definitely yeah I mean it was it was strange it was very strange. Um, and it was also strange to be in that band because everyone in that band is so talented, like ridiculously talented. Yeah. So it did feel a little like, like, ooh, I'm the, I don't belong here. I'm, the, I'm clearly the amateur guy that's like somehow in this group of pros. Those guys, all the band guys like, um, like Mike Viola, Daniel Clark, all those guys, they're just so cool. They're like some of my best friends ever. The experience was unbelievable, you know, but mainly because of those guys, just because, you know, they're very like generous people with their knowledge and, you know, time. And they think they probably always knew that like, oh, yeah, this guy's like, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing kind of <laughs> kind of thing. But um, but never for a second like led me to believe that they thought that, you know what I mean? Which is great. Was it then difficult for you to kind of balance out the projects that you were working on in the studio while you were on the road so much? Yeah, we did have like a mobile recording set up. So there was definitely things that could get accomplished on the road, but only as much as, you know, if it's capable in like, you know, in your bunk or in a hotel room or something like that. So, you know, nothing like too critical. I mean, I remember having conversations with you on the phone or even through email when you're in the UK or I'm on tour somewhere else and we're just kind of bouncing mix ideas or, or maybe you would even edit certain things i can think of uh there's a song called i can make it that will eventually see the light of day and i remember you kind of spliced up one part and send it to me and i remember thinking like it's pretty wild that we can do this but that was yeah. 2016 2017 now we are more accustomed to that sort of thing you know, like I, yeah. I mentioned that you and i worked on four songs off of oblivion but we weren't together for most of that. You know, I ended up recording yeah. the vocals here in Pennsylvania with Mike Bardzik. I ended up doing a lot of the guitars here myself in, in my, my home office. And I remember thinking, I need to kind of write guitar parts as if <laughs> Charlie was in the room. Like what, what he would think would be cool or what he think would be different enough. Well, yeah, you and did it. Yeah, yeah. Like I can specifically think of They Poison Our Fathers and, and Panic where it was like a matter of like, I need some. I always need to be doing something that's counter melody, or he's just going to respond like, "No, back to the drawing board, back to the drawing board." <laughs> and I remember thinking specifically for they poisoned our fathers because we wanted it to be out before election day. That I was like, I have yeah. to get this right. Like I need, yeah. you know, there can't be a whole lot of back and forth, so I need to nail it. And I think that the guitar work that I did on that song is exceptional. And, and, and I, that sounds wrong. That sounds egotistical. The guitar work on that song is incredibly unique and i think mm-hmm. also very emblematic of a divided heaven song like it sounds yeah. like the best version of a natural progression out of what started at young blood what developed at cold war 
Yeah. And then what landed that oblivion? I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely, each album, and this one included, I think, just sounds like a the natural progression from kind of where you left off. It's like, uh, you know, someone just getting better at all of it, you know, better at their instrument, better at writing. Yeah, and doing this work remote, I don't know if, I don't think it would have worked if, if you and I hadn't worked together. I think if we were starting from scratch and we and everybody was remote, I don't think it would have worked in the same way. No, that's true. I mean, and like I was saying before, I think like we definitely did do the thing that I do where we spend a little bit of time with everyone playing live and like working out arrangements like, oh, what should, you know, where do the drums come in? What kind of fill happens here? Like, well, how does the end go? Is it like a fade out? Do we do like a jam at the end and whatever? I mean, certainly the way that the four songs for the new record went down, I mean, that was, most of it was out of necessity. I mean, it was good that we were able to get the basic tracks all all done together live here because I think that gives it, like you're kind of, your first foot forward is like a live band, you know? Yeah. And like you, once that's there, you can't really get rid of that. I mean, it sounds like that. It sounds like people playing music in a room together. And it's not that it can't be done overdubbed and, and via, you know, like hiring people out to do the stuff individually and then you just collect the tracks and that's that. Um, there's nothing wrong with that either. But I think, you know, it's just like a different vibe to it. At the end. Sure. I think that's a really good segue to talk about a little bit of the mixing process. Going back to, to Youngblood, you and I were working together every day. Uh, we were practically living together because both of our, our personal lives were a little bit of a mess at that time. But we were figuring out everything on the fly. And it was yeah. I feel like it was the week that we finalized everything and had the final mix was when you kind of re-entered the world where you knew you were going to be touring again and it was kind of all yeah. happening at the same time. By the time Cold War came around, your touring schedule and my touring schedule often conflicted, so we weren't in the same place or on the same page for a lot of the mixing process. So it, it made it a little bit uh, more difficult. I specifically remember us being at the studio and we were going over home for the summer and you were like, the song isn't hitting right. It's just, yeah. it's not hitting right. And it had this kind of fog to it. And I remember I didn't hear it. And then the next day we went back and I was like, I get what you're saying. Like, how do we wrestle our way out of this? Fast forward to They Poisoned Our Fathers, which is technically the first single off of Oblivion. The mix on that has a brightness that we haven't had on a divide in the divided heaven canon yet. And I remember you saying that you had the song mixed, you went to bed, you woke up with an uneasy feeling about it and kind of started from scratch and redeveloped a different style of mix for a divided heaven record. Can you yeah. speak a little bit to that in terms of, even if you nerd out and kind of say things that are going to go over my head, I know there's people <laughs> that are listening that are going to be, uh, curious as to what your frame of mind was and anything setting-wise that you actually did. I do remember exactly what you were talking about, where I definitely did a version that I thought was okay. And that's that's been my process a lot lately is, like, you know, get it sorted out and, like, don't send it off. Like, I like to, like, revisit um, a song maybe the next day before sending it to the artist just to, like, see if I was fatigued and I decided, like, making decisions that maybe weren't, I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have continued working on it last night, perhaps. Right. 
just to confirm that like what I did late at night was good work, not just work that I thought was good. But yeah, I definitely remember the initial mix of that, like mix zero, as I usually call it, because I usually like print it and like I'll call it mix one because I'm very hopeful that it's like, oh, this is the one I'm going to send off and then we're on our way. We'll see what we got. Um, And I know for a fact I ended up renaming that mix zero just because it's something that no one else is ever going to hear. Yeah, it just didn't have the excitement that I thought. It just kind of boring, you know, and I knew that it wasn't boring. So then I knew something had gone slightly awry somewhere in the in the assembling process, you know. So I just I, I didn't necessarily start over, but I, I guess I sort of did. You know, when I say start over, it probably means like mute everything, get the drums sounding a little more exciting, which I'm sure again, that's what I mean. I, I don't remember exactly why it was boring and what I changed to make it not boring. But I probably added, like, compressed the drums more, probably brought the room mics up a little bit, just, like, gave it a little less of, like, a safe sound, Mm -hmm. made it a little bit more, like, unruly, a little bit, like, it's okay if the cymbals are a little bit loud. It just kind of, like, give it the impression that, like, you're seeing a band, not that you're, like, hearing a perfected recording. Yeah. Which is kind of what I usually go for. I mean, I guess I go for like, I try anyway to go for somewhere in between where it sounds like good, but definitely like slick. No, um, I usually don't set out or care even about that. Right. kind of just want it to like feel cool, you know? Yeah, for sure. Maybe that means it's a little different and weird sounding. I mean, I honestly think normal sounds is, or is not the way anymore at all like just like a classically good sounding album i mean the songs have to be really really good if like everything is just like stock perfect sounding if the songs aren't like the greatest songs you've ever heard then it's just gonna be like what is this why do i care like it sounds like a computer not like people you know yeah Um, and it's so time stamped too when that happens yeah we're working on a, a a version of time after time which will eventually be a, a B-side at some point. Cool. And I kind of did some sleuth internetting and found every rock band's cover of that song that I could find. Nice. And it was either like some Boney Vare type of, you know, mm-hmm. singer-songwriter asshole, or it was yep. some, uh, it wasn't acceptance, but it was that era of emo rock band from the early 2000s where it was just Pro Tools to shit. And it yeah. like everything was so precise and perfect that it acceptance just acceptance is pretty good though. Acceptance is pretty good. But you know, that era of shit where it was just too perfect. No, yeah. I totally agree. And it's funny because I mean I really loved that music when it was happening. And I not to say I don't now, I don't find myself like listening to it either. So I don't know what would happen if I put it on and I tried to make it through a record. I don't know if I would. Probably not. You would not. I know you. You would not. I can't get through. I stand by a lot of those bands, but I don't stand by a lot of their records. They're just... Interesting. Like Neil Avron, the records that he did with New Fine Glory and Starting Line and Fall Up, I I think were like, that's as far into perfection as I'm willing to go. Okay. And I think bands that were smaller that were kind of reaching for that next brass ring or that next rung were like, all right. too far? They took it a little too far. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that those, yeah, I think 
somebody like Neil Avron makes like pretty kind of perfect sounding records, but not overboard to the point where you're, I mean, at the time anyway, I guess I thought that not to the point where it's like unrealistic. Right. But like slightly. I mean, I think hyper-realistic is possibly a good term for some of those records. Like, I mean, when you know, a snare drum doesn't sound like a cannon, period. There are no <laughs> snare drums that sound like cannons. But yet, I've heard many, many snare drums on recordings that sound like cannons. Sure. And they sound awesome, sometimes. But sometimes you just, if you hear it enough in the song, and obviously you're going to hear quite a bit of snare drum in any song, at some point, you're like, what is going on? Like, yeah. why? How? How? Why? is kind of a question that would make me just turn it off. It's almost as if you can hear the band members quitting one by one and becoming local celebrities at the closest sports bar. That's like what those <laughs> records sound like to me. Yeah. <laughs> I did a record once, and I won't mention which or anything, but it was with a producer, and he this he, he mixed a lot of records. Like most of his work was mixing. Maybe there would be like you know three or something album productions a year, or maybe less. But anyway, we were doing this this mix, and um, the tracks came in, and they sounded really good. And but this producer, as mo- many, 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 many do, um, will put drum samples in with the real drum kit, and not necessarily like mute the actual snare mic or kick mic, but just like add a, sam- a sample to it to kind of enhance what you have. Um, right. And sometimes it might be muted. I mean, if the recordings are bad. You know, he's hired to make them not bad. So it means just put in like a fake, like one snare drum that's the same hit every time. And he had to, he had a, a, you know, a group of samples that he would use a lot. And one of them was pretty sure it was like a Dave Grohl snare that Mm -hmm. somehow they kind of just like were able to grab in some kind of drum break or something. That was an instance rarely did were, were musicians or the artists actually in the room for the mixes even then for this dude you know when they came in to listen to the mix i remember the drummer was like wow the drums sound awesome it sounds like like nirvana or like the Foo fighters or something like that now i'm sitting in the on the side thinking like oh my god this guy doesn't know he doesn't know and that to me that's crazy a little but also not. I mean, because, you know, I, he wasn't focused on that. He just came in to hear his band's song. And it's not like we listened to the snare drum soloed. We listened to the whole mix. And right. it sounds awesome. And, yeah, it did sound like other things you've heard before because, I mean, literally it was. It was. But, yeah. you know, what are you going to do? It sounds great. And he didn't know and he loved it. Well, here we are, 2021. You are sitting in your studio, which is your home studio, the Clock Tower Recorder in Joshua Tree, California. Yeah. You've been running that since essentially 2017. Is that right? That sounds right. Okay. I mean, I've lost track of time. Yeah. As most have. Where can people find out more about your studio and the work that you've done? Clocktowerrecorder.com is perfect for that. Well, tell us a little bit about the <laughs> studio. I know what it's like. I built one of the walls proper, kind That's of true. kind of not properly, but I don't think it'll fall on you while you're singing. No, no, it's definitely not going to fall. It's <laughs> definitely a little um, rough around the edges, but that's okay. Most of the stuff here is, and I don't mind that at all. Um, I think that aesthetically, the studio is a lot like the albums that I make, where it's cool. It doesn't, it's not perfect, but it's it's very cool, and I love it. Like you said, it's in it's in uh, Yucca Valley, California, which is 
you know, just next door to Joshua Tree. It's five minutes. Always set up for whatever it might be. Ideally, everything gets done on tape. That's usually kind of up to the budget. That's, you know, really the main factor. Mm-hmm. So it just has to be good. There is something that happens when, like, it's perfect to me. I'll just, it's so obvious. And then that's that. Like, we don't need to do another take. That's so interesting. Yeah. Especially on tape. You know, keep it minimal. Kind of plan beforehand. And, yeah, maybe you can do, like, a couple of takes of the lead vocal. And then maybe comp it later. Or maybe just listen to them and say, like, ah, second one's the best one. Let's just use that. Or, like, the second one's the best one, but I like the last chorus from the third one. So then, you know, it is possible to comp on tape. You sure. lose a generation of it, but you can do it. And, I mean, honestly, if you're recording on tape, you probably want to hear the tape. So losing a generation on, on tape is kind of cool. Well, that happened. I got Charlie Stavish on microphone. Talking about his work, talking about working with me. Thank you, Charlie, for coming on the podcast. Thank you again for uh, all the years of working on all my other records. But that has all led us to this, to Oblivion, to this Into Oblivion series on the Berman Hour podcast partnered with punknews.org. So I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Charlie Stavish. He is the fucking man. And when it comes to being in the studio, he's a madman magician. So... You should work with them. Why not? Maybe remote? Yeah, whatever. You get it done. Anyway, so be sure to check him out. I think you can go to theclocktowerrecorder.com or on Instagram. And, of course, at DividedEvan on Instagram and at the Berman Hour on Instagram as well. Thanks, y'all, so much. I hope you enjoyed this Into Oblivion series. I'm going to be talking to some great people in the next few months. So, until then, let's get it.